Thank you, Sean. Thanks for putting this together, putting, grateful for God laying this on your heart and the opportunity that this is for our church. And I hope that many of you, most of you, a lot of you take advantage of this. If you have a Bible, grab your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. And you'll note that it's kind of like halfway through a paragraph. And it's just so much in this paragraph to cover that I just can't do it. So we're going to, we're going to cover some of it and this morning. My hope in the midst of all of this focus squarely on the person and work of Jesus Christ as displayed on these pages in God's Word, even especially in Colossians, is that it moves our hearts and our minds and our very lives to be all the more focused on what God has done for us in Jesus and why that is truly everything for the manner in which we live out our lives now. We have our, our past, our, uh, in the past, Christ in His life, death, and resurrection secured our salvation. And in our future, we have this glorious hope that we have that we will be with God in His presence forever because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. And does that mean much to us in the now? And so my hope is that we see that, yes, it means so much to us in the now. And we have a sense of, of the worth of treasuring Christ in our lives right now. And so that's been my hope, my aim, my encouragement, and I'm trusting that the Lord will do a good work in us as we continue through this letter. So let's read, let's pick up verse 24 and read through verse 27 this morning. <clears throat> now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God be with us as we come to your word. Help our hearts to hear it, help our minds to think deeply on it, transform our lives by it. God, by your spirit and your word, would you do this to your glory and our good? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, this is a rhetorical question. Is the cost of college worth it? <laughs> rhetorical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, Exactly. It's a, a debate waged in, in our culture now, especially heightened in recent years, with most siding with a yes and no sort of answer. It's certainly most likely a yes, but it's filled with new complications. It's costly to go to college, as many of you know, and some of you are finding out. You with high school seniors are finding that out and very fresh ways. We like to know, we like to know that the things in life that come with a great cost are worth it, right? We, we all feel that. We all want to know and make sure this which I'm laying out a whole lot for is worth it in return. A whole lot of money, a whole lot of time, 
a whole lot of angst. Is it going to give back and return? We try to avoid the things that are costly but not worth it. We try. When it comes to treasuring Christ, there's a cost. There's a cost. And when it comes to the cost, we wrestle with, is it worth it? Is it worth it with your life to treasure Christ? To treat him as the greatest jewel in all of life. Is it, it comes with a cost. Treasure in Christ comes with a cost. It's everything. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Christ. It costs you everything. Your life, your identity. You're no longer in your sin. You are now in Christ. It costs you everything. But... Treasury in Christ also comes with a worth. And that worth, just to use a word to sum it up, is eternity. So the cost is everything, but the worth is eternity. Now in an objective moment like this, we can all say and agree, yep, that's it, I got it. But, if we're all very honest... This isn't an objective moment because you all have lives and those lives are going in motion and your mind is probably fixated on some things that are going on in your life. Heavy things, hard things, challenging things, weighty things, sad things, hurtful things and they're all sort of moving around in your head and your heart even as I'm speaking right now and so even though we can objectively say yes, okay, the cost is everything but the worth is eternity, life makes it hard for us to see that clearly, doesn't it? Makes it hard for us to see that clearly. So that makes this, what we are doing, all the more necessary and important that we don't fog up our vision with other things, that we make sure our vision is clear, that God has done everything marvelous and wonderful and forever for us in the person and work of Christ. And that means everything to us in the day in, day out of our lives. Because He truly is worth everything. So here we come to a passage. Paul is, he just got done, well he's not done, he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking how great and glorious Jesus is, but he just had this paragraph that just held out to us the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. He's holding all things together and he is the head of the church, he reconciles, he redeems. So he's the creator, the redeemer, the reconciler, And one day he's going to restore it all. I mean, so he's truly supreme and truly sufficient. But life is hard. I rejoice in my sufferings, he says. There's a cost to come to treasuring Christ. And my hope and my aim in all of this is that we would treasure Christ through all of life. That that would be the thing that compels us day in and day out is that I want to live my life treasuring Jesus through all of life, in all of life. I need to keep reminding myself and each other that Jesus is truly worth it. Because treasuring Christ in all of life isn't easy. It comes with a sacrifice. But we preach to our hearts the cost is worth it. It's worth it. And so this morning I want us to wrestle with why treasuring Christ is worth it from our passage this morning. And we find these things. The worth of treasuring Christ 
has seen in these three things through this passage, as we look at it through the lens of Paul's ministry and the implications that that has on us as believers. First is, the worth of treasuring Christ is seen in the hard of treasuring Christ. Now, it's hard to do this. Secondly, we'll see that it's seen in the heart of treasuring Christ. The heart of what it means to treasure Christ helps us see its worth. And then thirdly, sort of culminating, is the hope of treasuring Christ. The ultimate aim and end to where all this treasuring Jesus goes. And that's where we're going to head this morning. So first, let's consider the heart of treasuring Christ. Look at verse 24. It's probably the hardest verse in the whole book that Paul, or the whole letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. Hardest to understand every word that he's using and just even some of the other lexical stuff. It's just one of the more challenging verses because it's also hard because the English words sort of lead us on a path that makes it kind of really hard to know what he's trying to say. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church before we lead into trying to answer the questions that you might wrestle with when you read that verse the reality is this the heart of treasuring christ is this it leads to suffering it leads to suffering treasuring christ leads to suffering for those who treasure christ now our passage has some questions that sort of stir up in our heads our hearts like as we look at this what so I, I have three questions that sort of jump out for me when I read that verse. The kind of want to walk through just so that we have a better understanding of what he's saying. So that we can understand underneath all of this is that the hard of treasuring Christ is that it leads to suffering. So the first question is this. By what we read in verse 24, is Paul suggesting that Christ's work is insufficient? That something more needs to be added here? You see the word lacking, you see Paul saying he's filling it up. Like, is it to say that there's something in Christ that is lacking? Well, the quick answer is, no, that's not what Paul is doing. Just cast your eye up a few verses. Jesus is kind of in charge. He's got everything under his control. He made all things. He's the means by which sinners are reconciled to him, and he will one day restore all things. So there really isn't anything outside of the reach, if you will, of Jesus or his sufficiency. We spent three weeks trying to like really unpack that. So no, that's not exactly what Paul is saying. Paul has been abundantly and joyfully clear about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, it is a very hard passage. It's a verse with uncommon words used by Paul. Add in to our English words suggesting that something is missing from Christ's work. Rather, rather than reading that and thinking that something is missing in Jesus, what Paul is getting at is saying that he is following the pattern of Christ who was the suffering servant that we find in the Old Testament who came and, and, and his earthly ministry was one of suffering. He gave up glory to put on humanity. He put himself under the very law that he gave. He had a body that ached. He was facing the temptation of sin. He had a body that was broken. He went to a cross. The entirety of his earthly ministry 
was one of a suffering servant, and that Paul, called into a very unique ministry of his own as an apostle, follows the pattern set forth by Christ. So the second question that jumps out is, is Paul saying that he's suffering in the same way as Christ? Now, not in the same way as for redemption, what Christ suffered to secure our salvation is unique to Christ and Christ alone. It's more in the lines of this is what comes with the territory of bringing the gospel into the world via the ministry of an apostle that Paul has been called to. An apostle was a, a specially called by the risen Christ to lead the mission of the church into the world after Christ returned to heaven. Apostle is a very unique role in the history of the church. There were only a handful of them in the very first beginnings of the church that were specially called by Jesus to do this work. And the work that they faced was frontier into a hard Greco-Roman world full of, of pagan idolatry and pluralism and fierce persecutions that would burst up in the, here and there. But the apostles would go forth leading that work, and Paul was uniquely called to that. Now, the third question then is, if he's following this pattern in Christ, how does then suffering impact the advance of the gospel in the whole world? Well, here's where we see Paul embodying what is called by some scholars the cruciform life. Following the pattern of Christ and the manner of his ministry. He embodies the cross in his gospel ministry into this hard world, even though it brings suffering to his life. What do I mean by that? Well, in the ministry of the gospel going forward through Paul, victory comes in what looks like defeat. Strength comes in what looks like weakness. Wisdom comes in what looks like foolishness. What looks like absolute weakness and foolishness and defeat is actually God's means of bringing great power and great rescue and great hope into this hard, harsh world. Isn't that exactly what we see in the cross? It looked like defeat. The enemies of Jesus were gloating and mocking. It looked like Satan wins. And it's in the death of Christ that comes the death of death. So no, this is exactly what Paul is embracing and living up and following after and living out and embodying in his ministry into a hard place. I mean, he's writing it from prison. The letter that you are reading is written from prison. He's suffering for the gospel, but as he does, the gospel goes forward and advances. If you flip over to Philippians and read that, he's talking about how wonderful it is while he's in prison that he gets to share the, the gospel with all of the Praetorians, all of the guards. That even in Caesar's household, people are coming to know Christ. Even Kanye's are coming to know Jesus. It goes forward even in the midst of suffering. There's an old church father named Tertullian who said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That even in great suffering, the suffering that causes 
the death of beloved brothers and sisters whom we prayed for earlier in the service is, is the seed of the church. It doesn't stop the advance of the gospel. What wonderful news. And this is the form that, of ministry that Paul is embracing and following. Now, there are implications, though, for the body of Christ. We, us, here, now, right now, should expect our treasuring Christ to be accompanied with some form of suffering. Some form of suffering. Now, let me say a few things about that. First, suffering for Christ, because you're treasuring Christ, suffering isn't a sign that you're failing, but rather a sign that you're following. Now, no, it's suffering for Christ, not suffering because you're a jerk or you do bad things. Let's keep that into context. It's suffering because you have faith in Christ and you want to live life after Him. You want to walk in newness of life. And your walking in newness of life causes other people to not like you. It's not a sign that you're failing. There's damaging doctrine and theology that most likely would be what you hear when you turn on your television. That says suffering is because you don't have enough faith. That if, if you had more faith, then God would bless you better than what you have. It's garbage. Turn it off. Don't read it. Don't hear it. Amen. No, suffering isn't a sign that you're failing. Suffering for Christ is a sign that you're following. Secondly, it's because I can say that confidently because of this. Suffering, as a result of treasuring Christ, is part of the experience of following Christ in the world that rejects Him. Jesus said so. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it had hated him me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Comes with the territory. To suffer following Christ comes with the territory. It's not because you're failing. Third thing I want to say about suffering is sort of a flip side of that. Suffering isn't some sort of badge of being an extra awesome Christian that you should go after and choose. (laughs) Don't live out your life in such a way that suffering will easily find you. (laughs) Meaning, perhaps social media isn't the place to have very deep intellectual heart-affecting conversations about sin or the culture or the world or Christ. Maybe a cup of coffee would be a whole lot better for that. The other reason why I want to say that suffering is in some badge that we're trying to earn is because there will be a day when suffering is no more. Suffering is not the goal It's not the goal. It's okay to not want to suffer. It's not the goal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction, keep in mind, for those of you who don't know, the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he got beat up. His life was threatened daily. He knew what it meant to be poor and naked and without food. 
grasping for life. So I'll read that again. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering isn't the goal, so don't live as if it is. Now, what kind of suffering can we expect? Implications. If we follow a cruciform life, if we want to live out our lives following Christ and the pattern he set forth, what kind of suffering could we expect? I'm going to give you three. They all start with O because I'm a preacher and you just have to alliterate. That's in the rules somewhere. (laughs) Three forms of suffering. The first one is this. We are ostracized. And this kind of suffering is personal. We are ostracized in our personal relationships, in our workplace dynamics, in our own families. The gossip and the bitterness and the backbiting and the conniving and the just ugliness. The fact that we are sort of living out a little mean girl situation. There's a little cackle of them and we're the ones who get it all. That kind of suffering is ostracized. We are cast out from what is acceptable and cool and hip. And we're treated as if we're garbage. That kind of suffering, just simply because we want to follow Christ. Many of you in here probably have felt this, are feeling this even now. Maybe by your own blood. Maybe in the places where you work or in the places where you live. You feel this. You've experienced this. If you haven't, you will. If treasuring Christ is real in your heart and it starts showing up in the way that you live, this will come. Second one is this, obstacles. And these are more social constructs that we face if we are following and treasuring Christ. This is a more organized societal reaction to the Christian faith. It would be kind of like calling for tax-exempt status for churches to be revoked and other sorts of things that would cause the church or believers to feel some sort of pinch in the way that they live out their lives, making it all the more difficult. It's why certain states make it almost impossible for church plants to use public buildings like schools because churches or because those states have now said, if you can't adopt to our view of gender and sexuality, then you can't use these places. It's those sorts of societal constraints that come just simply because we want to go about treasuring Christ. Now these first two, most of us, that's probably all we'll ever feel and experience. Even the young ones in here. Most likely, we won't really know that which we prayed for already in our service. And that's the third one. And that's opposition in the form of persecution. Opposition in the form of persecution where there are purposefully designed laws and edicts that forbid or make illegal the practicing of the Christian faith in any sort of organized way. So as to give the green light to the government, to the state, to then come with a heavy hand onto the people of God. We see that happening throughout the world. These are the kinds of suffering we can expect in some form or another. Maybe two out of the three more likely than the third. But this helps us have a broader perspective on what it means to understand what following after Christ in this world can look like and feel like. It's hard. And it comes with its cost. It comes with a cost. You might have a loved one not want you at Thanksgiving this year. And it comes with a cost that maybe someday your tithe and your offering doesn't come with a deduction. 
And it might come with a cost someday where this couldn't happen. The 200 or so of us in this room would be outlawed. And so I say, if those are the kinds of costs that it comes with this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I'm pleading with you, yes, treasuring Christ is worth it even at this cost. Because what we see in the heart and the hope of, of, of treasuring Christ should bring us the right sort of perspective in the midst of the heart of treasuring Christ. So let's look at the heart of treasuring Christ. Look at verses 25, 26. So Paul speaking, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The heart of treasuring Christ is this. We get to join in and be a part of making mysteriously awesome news known. What, a, what an incredible kindness of God that we get to be a part of making mysteriously awesome news known. So in the gospel, we see it is a mystery revealed. There is a mystery revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the announcing of that through the gospel. That, that mystery refers to the hidden purposes of God for history for everything. And the but now revealed means everything has changed. Something that's come along has brought great clarity to what was once mysterious. And that thing that has come that brought change is the person and work of Christ. Christ is the revealing of God's intentions for all of history. It is the purpose of God accomplished and the promise of God fulfilled. So when you look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, you find the purposes of God fulfilled and the promises of God fulfilled. And so that when you read your Old Testament, if you read your Old Testament, when you open up your Bible and you see that there is an Old Testament, the people, the places, the pictures, the promises, the purposes that you find in that Old Testament, they were all leading up to Jesus. Here's the thing. I have in my margins and scattered throughout my Bible is a little triangle. And at the top of the triangle, I have an H. and the bottom left, I have an O. And on the bottom right, I have an N. And, and what it is, is it reminds me that all those things in the Old Testament, the people, the places, the pictures, the promises, and the purposes of the Old Testament, they weren't just accidents. They were all based off of something. They were based off of the heavenry, heavenly reality of God. They were based off of who Jesus is. And then, the, so that's the O. There's the H, it's the heavenly reality, and the O is this Old Testament picture, a shadow of what this is going to lead to. And then the N is in the New Testament. Jesus comes and he brings like 4D clarity to God's purposes. He reveals. He reveals it. It's incredible. Genesis 3.15. Abraham. The Exodus, Mount Sinai, the Promised Land, David, the Temple, the Prophets, all of those were patterned after Christ and fulfilled by Christ. 
Those weren't accidents that God sort of used and, and shaped into accomplishing good purposes. They came to being because they were going to reflect a hint, a shadow of what then Christ would bring into the full. And it helps us see that the overarching narrative of God word, God's word reaches culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I put a lot of emphasis on that, but our church name is Trinity, and rightfully so. This, just because the focus goes on Jesus so often, doesn't mean we don't have God the Father and God the Spirit very much at work. No, this is Trinitarian. This isn't Jesus only. It's helpful to realize that God the Father planned, God the Son accomplished, and God the Holy Spirit applies all of His purposes in our lives. The Father planned in agreement with the Trinity. The Son accomplished in agreement with the Trinity. The Spirit applies in agreement with the Trinity. So this is a full, eternal, perfect, loving plan of God bursting forth into time and space. And Jesus is at the center of redemption because God has Jesus at the center. In the New Testament, we see the Father and the Spirit bringing glory to the Son as the Son brings glory to God for fulfilling the plan. This is great. This is, this is all wrapped up in the mystery being revealed. I hope it's overwhelming because it should be. It should feel that way. God's sovereign, mysterious purposes revealed through Jesus. In this mystery, we, we get to join. We get to join God in making this known. We get to make this known through our gathered worship. We get to make this known in our intentional community together. We get to make this known on mission in our lives in Nashua together. We get to make known God's good, glorious, gracious, and great purposes wrapped up in Jesus. That's the heart of treasuring Christ. That's the heart of it. Paul grasped the scope of the gospel and therefore was joyfully motivated to spend his life making it known. I know I've said this before, but getting a taste of something great compels us to share it with others, doesn't it? When we taste something good, our impulse is to tell others and to share it with them. You have in the gospel the greatest flavor, aroma, everything of all of history. And you have the wonderful privilege. The wonderful privilege in your life. You are so meaningful. You matter tremendously. If you're seven years old in here, you matter tremendously. If you're 77 years old in here, your life still matters. You have the wonderful joy and privilege of making known this wonderful, incredible plan of God accomplished by Jesus to save sinners and to bring about restoration. So yes, your life matters tremendously. Maybe you don't go off and become a cultural icon. Maybe you just live in Nashua all of your life. 
And maybe you just have an ordinary job and an ordinary family and an ordinary house. But oh my, what a wonderful joy that in your ordinary life, you got to spend it making much of an extraordinary Savior in Jesus. This is the heart. This is the heart of treasuring Christ. It's not bottle it up, put it away and hide it. I just had a kid's song busted into my head. Maybe other people did too. No, you set it out there in your life, through your life. God has done a great thing. And on my life, it would not be here if it had not been for Him. Get to make this known. That's the heart. That is the heart behind treasuring Christ. And it leads us then to consider the hope. The hope. Look then at verse 27, continuing, Paul, continuing on with the heart of treasuring Christ. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The ultimate destination of all of this is Christ. Christ is the hope and glory is the context. Where is all this leading to Christ? And where is Christ? In glory. That's where this goes. So two things to say about that. First, the ultimate hope is Christ himself. Look again at verse 27 at the end. The ultimate hope of treasuring Christ is Christ himself, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I want to say this to you. You have Christ. You who have your faith and trust in Christ, you have Christ. You don't have a derivative of Christ. You don't simply have a benefit of Christ. You don't have the interest of Christ that you get to live off of. No, you have the whole treasure. You have Christ. And the reason why you have Christ is because Christ has you. Christ in you. You have the supreme king of the cosmos. Because the supreme king of the cosmos has you. We beat ourselves up with some significantly battered and bruised notions of self, don't we? Experiences in this life have caused us to wrestle with doubt. We struggle with our worth. We chase after things to give us a sense of identity or hope. I want to say to you who struggle with that, who feel that, who wish that you could filter your life in a different way that looks cooler or happier. I want to say to you that your hope is not found in what a broken world will say is good. Your hope is found in what a sovereign king has done to rescue you and to call you his and to give you himself. The world is harsh. 
Relationships are hard. The church is messy. Sin is present. Bodies fail. And guess what? Death comes to us all. Yet, in the midst of that, we have Christ because Christ has us. And we don't have the benefits of Christ apart from having Christ himself. And think about what that says there, which is Christ in you. That in you speaks to the proximity by which we are Christ's. Think of the proximity that that is saying. Christ isn't near you. In you, by his spirit, Christ identifies with you, draws near to you, calls you his own, gives you his righteousness, takes on your sin. He is in you and you are in him. Therefore, because of that proximity, he doesn't toss you aside when you fall and fail. Rather, he has tender mercy and powerful conviction for you. And he, therefore, is your legitimate hope in the right now. So if you were to grasp in an even greater way the hope that comes with treasuring Christ, what do you think that grasping would do to how you live out your life in the here and the now? What do you think that would do to the way that you live your life right now? If you got a greater sense of what you have in Christ because Christ has you. How would that greater grasp of treasuring Christ impact and shape your prayer life? How would it impact your time in the Word or time even for the Word? How would it fuel your love for other redeemed people that are in your life that you're sort of on this pilgrimage with until we get to glory? How would it foster in you compassion For those who are far off from Christ, rather than judging them and condemning them, you reach out to them with great news that you want to make known. How would it change the way that you use your time? Do your job, mow your yard, relate to your neighbors, spend your money. How would it change what you eat and when you eat it, and so on and so forth? What are the implications that come when you realize how great and how worth it it is to treasure Christ? Would it not be enough to lift up hearts that are drowning in the doldrums of this life? Would it not be enough to bring focus, encouragement to those who are distracted and discouraged by the consequences of sin? Is it not enough to give us strength to wake up tomorrow morning on Monday tired but not out? And then conversely, and this is hard, if treasuring Christ in your life doesn't lead to change, even if that change is just incremental, maybe you need to take time to diagnose your heart and your habits. Because we have one who is worth the cost. Because he has us. The ultimate. The ultimate. Hope. Is Christ himself. And that ultimate hope. Leads to us to see that the ultimate context. Is glory. Is glory. What you know now. You know in part. And you know it mixed. With the presence of sin. 
presence of sin in the world, presence of sin in your own heart. What you know now, you know truly, but it's mixed with the presence of sin. What you will know then, you will know in full. You will know in full. And there will be no hint or shadow of sin. That's a marvelous hope. No more doubting. No more distraction. No more depression. No more laziness. No more lust. No more longing. No more aches. No more anxiety. No more anger. No more. Just a full Christ forever. The hope of glory. Treasuring Christ will not be easy. It will come with a cost. But the heart, the hope of treasuring Christ helps us see how worth it is, really, in this life now. Let us be a people who take seriously the joy, the cost, the hope, the heart, treasuring Christ. Let's do that together. Pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its truth. And we pray that even in hard passages that you would bring comfort and direction to our lives in the here and the now. And so would you press into us just what we have in Christ and how Christ has us so that as we face the hard uh, that is in this life, hard things that makes it challenging for us to go about treasuring Christ, may we, may we be a people eager with a heart for treasuring Christ and fueled by this hope we have. We have Christ himself. God, may that bring timely encouragement to all of us in here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.